Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and it was my privilege today to continue our series of messages on the book of Acts, today looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Let's get started. What a beautiful and glorious morning this has been already. Wow. Okay, you know that you're supposed to turn, be turning to Acts chapter 8, but before we get to reading that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the privilege that you have given to us that we should be here in your revealed presence. Lord, how to, express, how to express that? How to put words around what you have done? But thank you, Father. Thank you for the, the awesome privilege of knowing you of knowing the Lord Jesus, of being infilled by your Spirit, that we might know you better and better. Thank you. Now, Lord, speak to us by your word. Let nothing but your word be heard here. Speak through me in spite of me that the name of Jesus might be exalted. And to you be all the praise and glory and honor in his precious name. Amen. Turn to Acts chapter 8 and we'll start at verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. In these early chapters of Acts, we have Luke's record of how the Lord has built his church or was building his church. Something of concentric circles, just as he had indicated in Uh, Acts 1 and verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The persecution that had erupted after Stephen's stoning had sent many of the believers out of Jerusalem. But the opposition hadn't counted on the fact that they simply could not remain silent about all that had transpired. So they went sharing this incredible good news of the resurrection of Jesus everywhere they went. And in these days, uh, the focus right now is on Philip and he was busy. He'd been instrumental. He was the first one, apparently, to preach the gospel in Samaria after Jesus rose from the dead. And that time, as Trevor had had indicated last week, a great number of Samaritans had come to the Lord. And now he was directed toward the southwest of Jerusalem. And the result that the gospel was reaching to the end of the earth. That's how Ethiopia was viewed at that time. It was, hey, way over there. Um... And incidentally, here's a, a, another little twist that just occurred to me this morning. The Ethiopia of this time is not the Ethiopia that we see on our map today. In fact, that, the, the Ethiopia of this first century included all that is now Sudan and Eritrea on the uh, east coast of Africa. And in fact, now this is something I didn't know until this past week. Ethiopia had a thriving trade with India in this period. So much so that for some writers, India was referred to as Eastern Ethiopia. And from the Indian side, it was referred to as Western India. <laughs> so they were very closely tied. And if you, apparently if you, if you look at the, the facial features of the people on both sides of, that, of the Indian Ocean, you'll find remarkably similar features. Now, it's just a by the way. Um, 
You know, and we're, we're praying for our brothers and sisters in Sudan who are suffering persecution because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. But to get back to the story, Luke doesn't give us anything in the way of a time frame. There is a tiny clue in Acts 8.25, which reads, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord in Samaria, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, Luke doesn't tell us specifically who the they is to whom he refers. But I think it's safe to assume that the group included Peter and John and Philip. And they likely took a while, maybe a couple of weeks even, to return to Jerusalem since they were preaching in the towns and villages on the way. Now, if my assumption is correct, if my time frame is anywhere close, then the events of our passage have taken place just a few weeks after the Samaritan episode in the first part of the chapter. And I think that would fit if our nameless Ethiopian had gone to Jerusalem to be there for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which falls about four months after Pentecost. Luke does indicate that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. But who was this Ethiopian? Again, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of information. From Ethiopia, he was likely a black man, and, but we do know that he held an important position that he was the equivalent of the Minister of Finance for the Candace, or the, the, the Ethiopian Queen. And there's a whole other story there, and I won't go down that rabbit trail. But another thing that we do know about him by inference is that he seems to have been fairly wealthy because he could afford to purchase some scripture. How much he had, we don't know. But remember that at that time, all scripture had to be copied by hand, which made owning portions the prerogative of the very rich. I mean, even today, a hand-copied copy of the Torah is the work of many months and a certified copy of the Torah. Now, that's just the first five books of, the, of our Old Testament. A, hand, a certified copy will typically fetch something between fifty dollars and $150,000 today. So, it gives you an idea of the probable cost of this scroll of Isaiah. It was not cheap. Now, we can also surmise that this Ethiopian was not traveling alone. Something on the order of 2,500 to 3,000 kilometers between his home and Jerusalem. That's a three-month trip. And he was traveling relatively slowly. I mean, Philip caught up with him. Philip probably on foot. 
Um, so he's traveling relatively slowly while he's reading the scripture. So, but someone else was likely reading or uh, driving the carriage. Um, likely, because he's a, a man of position, uh, he was traveling with a caravan of some sort, because he would need protection from the less on the road. And, but we have no indication of the size of the caravan or of how many others were traveling with him. Then there was Philip. You know, one thing that struck me when I read this is that Philip didn't argue with the Lord. After an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, it would have been quite reasonable, quite understandable for Philip to have asked, why would I go south now? I'm busy here with your church. There's not likely anyone on the road. It's over 100 kilometers to Gaza. It'll take me three or four days to get there. But apparently he didn't debate the issue. He just packed up what little he needed for the journey, however long it was going to be, and took to the road south toward Gaza. It may be that he remembered what the Lord Jesus had taught in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So, again, we don't know how far down that road toward Gaza Philip went before he came up on the caravan. He may have been traveling a day or more before he saw it. But again, Philip proved to be alert to the direction of the Holy Spirit and he ran up through the security check of the caravan company and got himself close enough to the carriage to hear what the official was reading. Again, we have to go back, have to put ourselves back into that milieu, that culture. Because it sounds strange to us that someone, uh, you know, we're, we're used to modern typefaces and, and print. It seems strange to us that someone would be reading aloud. But think about this. Hebrew has no vowels in its alphabet. So, as you're reading, if you're reading Hebrew, you have to supply the vowels as you go. And that's a lot easier if you're reading aloud. And Greek, if you're reading Greek from that period, Greek was written with no spaces between the words. Now, try to read that silently. you got trouble. So in both cases, we process the words much more easily if we read it aloud. And today, uh, in, in some Jewish communities, you will find that when a Jew is reading the scripture, he is reading it aloud. He may, not, he may be no more than muttering under his breath. 
but he's still reading aloud. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where he is. He might be on a bus. He might be in a public library. He might be alone. He's reading it aloud. There's something about the Scripture that wants that. So when Philip got close enough to the carriage, he heard the Ethiopian reading Isaiah aloud. And at that point, I don't think Philip needed any more prompting from the Holy Spirit. He knew what to do. And one of the things I've learned along the way is when I'm involved in any kind of one-to-one encounter, um, I've learned that I get further when I pose my comment as a question. So Philip wisely begins with a question. Do you understand what you're reading? I mean, think about it. Philip was at a disadvantage. He didn't know this man. He didn't know anything about him, except that he was probably rich and influential. He might have been well-schooled in the Scriptures, or perhaps not. He might, for all Philip knew at that point, be a very conservative Pharisee. Or he might be a hardened Gentile who is just looking to pick up. He just picked up this scroll in the course of a visit, I don't know, maybe to a used bookstore. So his question, do you understand what you are reading, was a bit of preliminary diagnostic. And then the Ethiopian's response, how can I unless someone guides me? That was all the opening Philip needed, especially when it was coupled with an invitation to sit with him in the carriage and to discuss the passage in question. By the way, most of our translations use the word chariot. There's a few that use the word cart. I don't think either of them really fit. I mean, this is not a war chariot. Not likely. It's not the Ben-Hur racing chariot. Okay? Nor is it as, I don't know, simple as a cart. I mean, this guy's rich. He's a, he's a cabinet minister in, in the Queen's cabinet. No, this is something of a, a carriage of some sort. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the question of the the Ethiopian was about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself? Or someone else. Over the centuries, the meaning of this passage from the prophet's writings has been the subject of a fair bit of scholarly debate. There are some who thought this person represented the nation of Israel. Others thought Isaiah was talking about himself. Still others thought that the reference was perhaps to the the faithful of Israel, 
But like a whole lot of prophecies, it could only really be understood in hindsight after the events that were described have taken place. And I have no doubt that the Lord Jesus used this passage, among others, in his exposition of Scripture to the disciples on their way to Emmaus, that first resurrection morning. After all, he had referred to it specifically on the eve of his arrest. And you'll find that in in Luke 22. Now, I'm not sure that all who will hear my voice today have committed themselves to the Lord Jesus. But even for we who do know him and love him, the story of what he accomplished is a treasure. So let me take a couple of minutes to outline what I think that Philip likely told the Ethiopian. Now in my Bible, I have a number of penciled headings in this chapter of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 53 if you want to turn there. Um, I have a number of penciled headings in this chapter from a message I listened to and I I'm not sure who the speaker was. I think it may have been Chester, Chester Donaldson. Um, But this passage that the Ethiopian was reading that day describes, according to the heading, my penciled heading in the Bible, the cross of the Savior. The fact is that Nowhere did Jesus defend himself in his, after his arrest. In fact, he didn't defend himself during his arrest. He didn't defend himself in the garden, nor before the high priest, nor before Pilate or Herod. Truly, he was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers. But there was purpose to it. Jesus was my substitute. He's your substitute. His death in our place means that our slate can be wiped clean. That we can now stand before God as righteous and uncondemned. goes further though. And uh, you know, he says he made it, they made his grave with their wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, so there was no deceit in his mouth. Where was Jesus buried? The tomb of a rich man. A new tomb that had never been used very expensive tomb. Going a little further in Isaiah's prophecy, verses 10, starting at verse 10 in Isaiah 53, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. 
shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide up him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You read that and it's a bit confusing. But pay attention to the tenses of the verbs that are used. Jesus made himself an offering for sin. That's past tense. He shall see his offspring. Future. He shall prolong his days. Wait a minute. After he died, he'll going to prolong his days. The point is that Jesus is alive. He died on that Roman cross. He died for me and for you. Because of his sacrifice, he makes many to be accounted righteous before God. And though Jesus died on that Roman cross, he is risen. Now, I don't know all that Philip said to the Ethiopian that day. But I believe he spoke not only of this passage, but also of the necessity of baptism for believers. Baptism is not an optional extra, but a token of our commitment to the Lord Jesus. It's a visible demonstration to ourselves as much as anyone, of our dying to self and our rising to serve Christ Jesus. It's a visible representation of the seal that God places on our lives. And when it's performed in public, it's also a testimony to the bystanders. A testimony that says, I mean business with God and I'm not backing away from Him. And of course, the Holy Spirit who had directed Philip to this encounter was also working in the heart and mind of the Ethiopian. So when the company came across a wadi where there happened to be, just happened to be, a pool of water. The Ethiopian was ready. Verse 36, As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, there may have been more than a matter of faith behind this man's question. I hear a deep hurt. Deeper by far than the physical pain that was inflicted on him when he became a eunuch. I suspect that this man, hungry as he was for God, had come to Jerusalem 
hoping to become a Jew. Only to have the door slammed in his face. Because the law specifically says, Deuteronomy 23, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And as a result, he was denied access to the people of God and consequently access to the holy place. So now he asks Philip, what prevents me from being baptized? For today, for all of us, we could perhaps rephrase the question slightly. What prevents any one of us from being baptized? And the answer should be a very simple one. Nothing. Your race, your color, your gender, your sexual orientation, nothing in your past, nothing anyone else has done to you, nothing. There's absolutely nothing to prevent any human being from becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus. Since we're all loved and valued, there is nothing, nothing should stand in our way except our own stubborn will and our refusal to receive all that the Lord Jesus died and rose again to provide for us. Paul put the question eloquently in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? So, the invitation is there. Do you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Do you recognize what He has done for you? What is your response? So Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. But then something happened. Verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So this man, from the end of the world, had a life-changing encounter and went on his way rejoicing in his new relationship with God. Reports from the next century, from the second century, report that he didn't keep his newfound faith to himself. He couldn't. Not surprisingly, he began to tell others about the Lord Jesus. And by the late second century, there were reports of a thriving church in this area south of Egypt. Now, unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot about that church. 
The, only, the next touch point we have is somewhere in the 4th century. And recent archaeological discovery of a church building in that area. But eternity will tell the full tale to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Philip, on the other hand, went on to have more adventures as he made his way northerly along the coast until he arrived at Caesarea. And we simply don't hear anything more of him for about 20 years. And then we find him with four daughters who prophesied, welcoming Paul on his way south to Jerusalem. So think about it. Philip answered the direction of the Spirit of God and went southerly toward Gaza, where it didn't make a whole lot of sense to go. And that encounter with an unlikely man has no doubt resulted in many, many people embracing the Lord Jesus. What might the Lord have in store for each of us? Don't know. And you notice the Lord didn't tell him when he was in Jerusalem, go south in there and you're going to meet a an Ethiopian in his caravan and you're going to do that one step at a time. Just go south. Go up and join that caravan. Tell them about the Lord Jesus. One step at a time. It's typically the way the Lord does. He doesn't lay out the whole plan in front of us. One step. You're obedient there. You get the next step. But the seeming inconsequential actions. That meeting in the mall. The phone call you make to someone you haven't spoken to in quite a while. The meal you gave to someone who was hurting. The errand that you ran for a neighbor. What effects might they have? If we are faithful and responsive, to the guidance of our Lord. Who knows what might be happening? And who knows what role we might play in the lives of others? So, live your life. Do it all for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And as Peter put it, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, team, would you... David, I would ask you to close us in prayer, please. Lord, we have to say thank you once more for all that you are and all that you are doing in each one of our lives. Lord, we bless you, we praise you, we thank you. As we go forth for the barbecue, we thank you for the refreshments and all that is to be following this afternoon. Lord, help us to be like Philip in this account this morning, to realize the deserts are your places of appointment, and to realize that you have special people in this world 
just waiting to hear the preaching of Jesus. Lord, help us to hear your Holy Spirit even this day. And we give you our thanks. Bless us as we separate in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.